0: Welcome to the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Now here's your host, Dr.
1: Mike Wall. Welcome to the show, I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. Today we'll discuss the pressing question, how is climate change impacting Newfoundland and Labrador? We might not think of climate change as something that impacts our health, but it actually does. Climate change brings a range of direct and indirect consequences that affect our well-being in a lot of different ways. First, extreme temperature fluctuations can exacerbate existing respiratory and cardiovascular conditions and even introduce new diseases like Lyme disease, which is traveling to Canada now the temperatures are warmer. Warmer temperatures also affect air quality and the frequency of forest fires, which we've seen here at home. They also alter pollen pollution, which can worsen respiratory issues like asthma and allergies. Now, it's not just physical health that's affected. Mental health can also take a hit. As climate change creates uncertainties and challenges, we may see a rise in anxiety, depression, and PTSD, especially among those vulnerable communities. In the north, climate change puts their very way of life at risk, as we'll see in this episode. Now, food security is another concern, as climate change can impact the availability and quality of food resources, including our very own fish stocks. Now, we also have to remember that much of the food we have here in Newfoundland and Labrador is brought in from other parts of the world where climate can impact crops, which then directly impacts us. Lastly, let's not forget the strain on the infrastructure, healthcare services and our communities as extreme weather events can damage critical facilities and transportation networks, just like we had in the hurricane last year. It's a lot to think about. Well, to help us answer this question, I was fortunate enough to embark on a journey to Ottawa to visit the incredible Canadian Museum of Nature. I met up with Dr. Jeff Sorella, an Arctic researcher and botanist. He shed light on the critical role the Canadian Arctic plays as an indicator of climate change. Let's get to our conversation in the Museum of Nature as he explains his research and what we know about how the changing climate is impacting our province. This place is incredible, Jeff. We pulled up and it's like a castle in the middle of downtown Ottawa. Tell me a little bit about the museum.
2: Yeah, so we are in the Canadian Museum of Nature, and the Museum of Nature has its origins in the Geological Survey of Canada. So in the latter part of the 1800s, the Geological Survey was working in the country trying to understand the mineral diversity, the rock diversity, and the diversity of life from coast to coast to coast. And they, you know, over the decades built up a large collection of objects, and eventually they wanted to be able to share the the objects, the specimens that they've gathered with the public and They also needed a place to, to, to carry on their work, so they petitioned the government to, to build a, a national museum in Canada, and this is the result. So the Victoria Memorial Museum building opened to the Canadian public in 1912, and uh, you know, over the decades that followed, there have been many changes in the museum's uh, structure and organization. And in 1990 this museum and all the national museums became federal crown corporations. And uh, now the Canadian Museum of Nature continues its important work to uh, understand biodiversity and biodiversity across Canada and around the world. So the museum's vision is a sustainable natural future for everybody. And our mission is to save the world with evidence, knowledge, and inspiration. Evidence is the 14.6 million specimen collection that the museum stewards, cares for, shares, and develops. Um, Great science collection. Knowledge is knowledge about the natural world derived through research. So we've got a large team of research scientists who generate new knowledge about uh, the, the planet, about Canada, and how climate change, you know, is affecting affecting life and inspiration. So this this building is a public facility. We welcome Canadians and people from around the world to come visit us to learn about uh, Canada's natural diversity, to learn about the beauty of the country, its diversity, and to get uh, you know learn about how they can what they can do in their own lives to make a difference to help us achieve that sustainable
3: future.
1: Now there are floors upon floors of exhibits here and we're in a pretty cool room right now. So I'll describe to the folks at home, there's some really large metal panels behind us and there's beautiful glowing ice and artwork all around us. Why did you wanna take me to this exhibit in particular?
2: Yeah, so this is uh, we're standing in front of an exhibit called Beyond Ice in the Canada Goose Arctic Gallery at the museum. And Beyond Ice was a co-creation between the National Film Board and the museum. And uh, normally, we see these large uh, panels of ice on these steel structures. And the, 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 the exhibit tells the story of the transformative changes caused by climate change in the Arctic that are affecting all living things uh, in, in the Arctic. Unfortunately, the, the ice melted overnight. Not planned, um, but I think it's an apt metaphor for exactly what the exhibit's trying to tell us, that things are changing very rapidly. Normally you can touch the ice and feel the Arctic change on your fingertips.
1: So Jeff, you're a researcher, so I'd assume that like me, you could have gone into academics for your research in a university setting, but instead you're taking the lead in a lot of ways here at the Museum of Nature. How does it make you feel to work for an organization that's dedicated to preserving the nature of Canada?
2: Yeah, so it's 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 a real privilege to be able to uh, conduct scientific research in a in a public facility such as the Museum of Nature, but also to have the opportunity to engage with the public, you know, close up up close and personal. And that's you know doesn't happen in, in a lot of scientific institutions. But at the museum, part of our mandate is to share knowledge with the public, and we have hundreds of thousands of visitors that come to the museum every year. So uh, we can share our knowledge through exhibits like this and you know some of the others that that we're going to see. Um, but we have many different ways of communicating with Canadians to share. Both the the new knowledge that we are generating at the museum, but also the stories about the natural world in Canada, and the world, and to help people understand, you know, what what's happening, how is climate change, for example, affecting the country? How is it going to affect our future? And uh, you know, we can share those stories and also impart some hope in people that that you know make them understand that yes, the choices we make can contribute to having a positive impact on our future.
1: Yeah, I think it's important to do what you love, because that's what I do, but it's also important to do things that move the needle. So, you know, depending on who you ask, and I know this is a sort of a touchy subject for people, but there are different opinions on climate change. So as a researcher, what's the science actually telling us?
2: Yeah, so the consensus of the scientific community is is clear that climate change is unambiguously, absolutely caused by, by humans. Um, it, as we increase the amount of greenhouse gases in the environment, the, the atmosphere is getting warmer, holding heat, and that causes the climate to change substantially. Um, there, this is not, not a controversy.
1: I'm not really surprised by that because that's what I've been hearing all along too, but it is good to check with somebody who works at a place like this. Now, I alluded to it earlier, but you are a researcher, and what's your specific area of study? Is it to do with nature itself or climate change?
2: Yeah, so I'm um, a botanist here at the Museum of Nature. I study plants. And in the Arctic, my work focuses on understanding where different species of plants are distributed over time and space. So we know the Arctic is changing, but it's a huge area. It's like 40% of Canada's area. And in order to understand at a very fine scale how plants and animals, for example, are changing and will change as the climate changes, we need to have a baseline of you know what species occur where now, mm-hmm. right? How can we understand what might change in the future if we don't know what the situation is now. So there's a lot of work to do to build that baseline. And that's what we continue to do. So these
1: changes that we're seeing in the biodiversity of the Arctic, what are they showing us and what can you interpret from that?
2: Yeah, so uh, thinking about vegetation in the Arctic. So there's a lot of evidence from satellites, from people doing on the ground surveys that shrubs. So, you know, woody, woody plants are getting bigger, they're getting denser. And what that happens is when these shrubs get bigger, they change the ecosystem. They change the habitats in which small animals like uh, lemmings and voles, for example, can live. They change the, uh, the, the ground. Uh, so, you know, different uh, lichens and, and mosses changes the environment in which they live in. So as you get a bigger shrub cover, everything changes. More snow stays trapped amongst that vegetation and, and things change. So we're trying to understand what those changes are and they're happening very rapidly.
1: Now to assume that these plants are a source of food for the animals in the Arctic, right?
2: Absolutely. So yeah, uh, lichens, for example, uh, uh, are an important food for caribou. And we know that the caribou herds in the Canadian Arctic are, are not doing so well. And that may be because in some cases, some of the foods that they rely on in the winter, like lichens, are not as available because the habitats in which those lichens grow are being pushed away due to shrubification. Uh, you know, if you come to this gallery, you'll learn a bit about it. You know, the gallery talks about the geography of the Arctic, the history of the Arctic, and the people that, that have lived in the Arctic for, for millennia. So the Arctic Inuit, Noongate, the Inuit homeland. Um, if there's a huge uh, cultural component to the, to the Arctic. And uh, you learn about the plants and animals that live here and how plants and animals have changed over millions of years. So mm-hmm. the Arctic was a much different place in the past. You know, climate has always been changing. That's not a new thing. Mm-hmm. Climate's always been changing. What's different now is that the rate of the pace of change is substantially increased. It's, 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 the climate is warming much faster now, faster than it's ever warmed before, orders of magnitude. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where the challenge lies. Mike, I want to show you something in the rest of the gallery. So, I mean, I mentioned that the climate has been changing, you know, constantly. And mm-hmm. I want to show you what that's meant for the Canadian Arctic. Okay, let's check it this yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, Into the back of the gallery. We are entering a part of the Canada Goose Arctic Gallery that talks about climate and the changes that have happened in the climate on planet Earth over many, many millions of years. Mm-hmm. So, about 69 million years ago, the Arctic was much warmer. Dinosaurs lived there. 65 million years ago, asteroid comes in from outer space, wipes out the dinosaurs, and the, the planet changes almost overnight. We enter the age of mammals. Mammal evolution starts to take off. So by about 55 million years ago in the Eocene period, at Ellesmere Island, for example, Big Island in what is now the high Canadian Arctic, it was warmer than when the dinosaurs existed. And there was large hippo-like animals that lived up there. We know that from the fossil record. Very slowly, the, the climate continued to change through time over, over millions of years. By 3.5 million years ago, the Canadian Arctic was a, a temperate forest. Okay? There was uh, large animals like camels living in the Arctic and those camels were about twice the size of a modern camel, wow. which you see there. Uh, by about 110,000 years ago, the northern hemisphere of Earth uh, entered an ice age Okay, and things cooled off. About 10,000 years ago, the glaciers finally melted mm-hmm. and the planet started to slowly warm up. The pace of climate change has increased substantially over the last 120 or so years. So if you look at the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which scientists measure around the world. Um, that Carbon dioxide concentration starts to rapidly increase at the start of the Industrial Revolution when we're pumping all kinds of emissions into the environment, okay? And the CO2 concentration just goes up, up, up and up, and as the CO2 concentration goes up, the Earth gets warmer, and those emissions are directly caused by humans.
1: That's really alarming. I I didn't really know that much about it before I came here today, so I really appreciate you showing me around.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, I mean, if you really want to learn about the Arctic, you know, you need to go to the Arctic you know, stay in your home province, go to Labrador. Lots of Northern communities that are close to the Arctic. They're Arctic-like environments and they are feeling the changes of climate change every single day.
1: That was Dr. Jeff Sorella from the Canadian Museum of Nature. When we come back, we'll travel north to Nain to see the changing climate firsthand. We'll be right back. After the break.
0: Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking.
1: My conversation with Jeff had me curious about the impacts of climate change here in our province. Now, if you live in a larger urban center, you probably don't see these impacts, so I had to look to rural communities. I found an organization that was working out of name that technically wouldn't exist if it wasn't for climate change. So I flew to the north coast of Labrador to meet with Rex, the manager of Nunatsavut Operations for Smart Ice. When we said we wanted to visit Nain, our friends at Provincial Airlines were quick to help us out. As we flew north, the geography changed to rocky hills, snow, and ice. Nain is surrounded by hills, so the only means of transport was across the ice, and I could see snowmobiles traveling like a highway in and out of town. Immediately, I could see how the changing environment could impact everything in a place like this. So, we're here at the Smart Ice office, and you guys are doing some pretty cool stuff. Tell us about
0: what you do here. Uh, so, we do two things. We're actually, um, you know, Smart Ice, we're a social enterprise, and one of the main things that we do is, is here at the Northern Production Center here in Maine is we actually assemble Smart Boys. Mm. So, what they do is that we can tell by the temperature difference between the seawater and the ice, uh, we can determine how thick the ice is. So, tell me about the Smart Comatic. So if I were going to go on a run for a smart comedy, I would take the comedy and then, you know, I I would take it and strap it onto a real mm-hmm. Um, I would uh, assemble the green cable, the data cable that hooks up to it onto a tough pad, which is on my handlebars. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, that tough pad, it'll tell me in real time as I'm traveling along uh, how thick the sea ice is. Mm-hmm. Um, And really, you know, I can go for a 20-minute snowmobile ride, or I could go for an eight-hour snowmobile ride, and it'll tell me the ice thickness for any trip. And as soon as I come back within Wi-Fi range, um, it'll automatically upload the data to our platform to where it goes. Wow, that sounds like a
1: really valuable tool, especially when you think about going that big of a distance. There must be some dangerous spots along the way.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the one thing when we always operate, you know, we always tell our operators to rely on your on your on your CI sense, um, you know, don't rely on, on reading the tablet, um, you know, just rely on your traditional sense of, of the CI and read it so you know that you're safe when you're operating the snowmobile, then we'll travel out by snowmobile to the location um, where the smart is going to go, I will drill two holes in the in the ice. And hopefully, you know, if I drill the, the holes perfectly, the the smart boy can just drop right in. Um, then I'll turn it on. And really, I, I, I would just cover it in with a little bit of snow and ice to help it freezing a bit faster. And it, it should be working from there. Has there been a shift in the
1: ice recently?
0: Yeah. I mean, like, again, from 2009 to now, you know, people my age and people younger that, you know, we're seeing climate changes have an effect here in Maine and Nunezhe, But, I mean... Um, back when I was a young father, you know sometimes the harbor out there would be fr- freezing sometimes as early as early December. Mm. Um, but now you know we're seeing it lift, the ice form later and later near like last year it didn't form in the harbor until really well into middle January. Or so you know, back in 2009, 2010, you know we had rain here in in January, right? It's supposed to be minus 40, but right. you know for those two years we had rain. so you know, in the span of my lifespan, you know, we're seeing climate change. A lot yeah well i've been
1: seeing like people going back and forth over the ice uh like why is it so critical to the community here
0: well i mean the the sea ice it's been said i've said it a hundred times i'll say it a hundred other times you know really it is our highway you know we need the sea ice to go to get our food you know to go get seals to go get char to go get fish um You know it's it's not a part of our culture you know the sea ice is our culture you know we have to go to practice our traditional activity to go hunting to go fishing to, to go to our traditional lands um you know if the sea ice isn't there it's it's really going to have a huge effect on our culture
1: i was really excited to learn more after talking to rex
0: but like anything
1: it's always best to see it for yourself so we geared up and attached a sensor to our sled and headed out on the ice The first thing I realized was just how vast the area is. The hills around us were rocky and barren, and the ice was as far as the eye could see. You realize there's no ships bringing in food in the winter, so the ice becomes a road to access fishing spots and hunting grounds for food. It's also the only way to get wood to stay warm and access cabins for recreation and a break from day-to-day life. These things are all critical to the health of the people that live here. That means thinning ice isn't just a safety risk but it also threatens the way of life of northern communities and their culture so so rex this is a huge area why did you
0: pick uh this spot in particular uh so this was decided to be a good spot because it It hits two things that we really want one is the the labrador winter trail that you see marked behind us Mm -hmm. Um, it's the intersection of that. So, I mean, a lot of people travel between here to other southerly communities. So this would be one good reason why it's here because a lot of people use it. Yep. And the second reason is that it, it actually crosses the, the ship's track of right. the Boise Bay ship.
1: That's what that is over there? Yep. Okay. So
0: it's for the safety of the workers who, who have to maintain it and, and come out here when a ship is here to pull, pull the pontoons out, uh, it's just a good indicator that they can use to keep them themselves uh, safe as well when, they, when they're when they coming out to do their work.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you'd think that the ice would be a little more vulnerable. So what's the difference between this buoy that stays in the ice and then the one that goes behind the sled, the COMATIC sensor?
0: So this smart buoy, uh, this is measuring the ice exactly where it is. Um, it doesn't measure, you know, five feet out, 10 feet out. Where it, it is, it's measuring the ice thickness right then into there. Um, so this is great in locations where people travel frequently, like like I said right now, this is at the Labrador Winter Trails intersection in Boise Bayship. Um So a lot of people come through here. So if they want, if they're coming in this location, they can grab the data on yep. this uh, from the website to see how thick the ice is here. Mm-hmm. And the smart comedy um, is great for everywhere else. Yeah. So you know, a lot of people come this way, but because Nain is on a peninsula, people can, can go north or south or east or west, pretty much anywhere on the sea ice. Yeah. Um, with the portable smart comedic, we go to the other locations where people may frequent, uh, you know, up to the cabins, up to fishing places where people get wood. Um, it, it just, it's just it's just great for pretty much going everywhere else where the smart boy isn't. And, that, and that's the whole point, like you said, is getting this data and getting the, the data to the people so they can see and make informed decisions while they're traveling on the sea ice.
1: Mr. Rex, I really appreciate you showing me this. This is a pretty remote location for somebody like myself. I know it's not for you, this is only a small thing. We said we we're going up for a skidoo ride and you said it was about a half an hour, but thanks for taking me out and showing me this.
0: Yeah, no problem, I'm glad you're here and got to see our beautiful land and, and how Smart Ice works.
1: Well, I hope we can take the long way home so I can see more of it because I really enjoyed that ride out.
0: Oh, we will, okay, good. <laughs> we will. <Perfect. laughs> A lot of people aren't aware of the impacts of climate change having somebody who's so far from you know people on Avalon but I mean the reality is it's a part of their province um it would be nice if a lot of more people know and for you guys to come out and help us spread the word um you know that that's that's something that we'd like to see and to share a part of our culture as well to other people who may not be familiar with it yeah yeah I'm glad you guys came up and and help you know let, pe- let other people be aware, you know, climate change is real and it is, it is affecting people. May not be them, but I mean, it has real effect on other people as well.
2: Take a break.
0: Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. After hearing about the effects
1: of climate change up north and what people are doing to cope with it, I continue my chat with Jeff from the Museum of Nature. This time we talked about a problem that isn't even 100 years old but is quickly becoming one of the biggest threats to our environment, in particular, in the oceans around our island. Plastic. Jeff took me to the Ocean Gallery in the Museum of Nature to an exhibit that had swirling plastic bags and water and displays with tiny microplastics that can be found in our oceans.
2: Okay, Mike, now we are in a exhibit called Ocean Plastics in the Water Gallery, and what this exhibit is showing is the impact of plastics on the marine environment. So behind us, these are uh, live jellyfish, mm. okay? You know, fantastical creatures in this aquarium. In the aquarium, to my right, is, uh, you know, structures that look like jellyfish. They're actually plastic bags, yeah. and young sea turtles can't tell the difference between jellyfish and small plastic bags, and they feed on these things, And over half of sea turtles have uh, plastic in their digestive systems yeah. because they're eating this plastic junk that is has gotten into our marine environments
1: yeah, well plastic hasn't been around for that long so i guess the big question is how do we get to this point how do we end up getting buried in plastic
2: yeah. good good question indeed so for for millennia humans lived in you know concert with the natural environment they lived sustainably after the the second world war the things started to change and all of a sudden somebody invented plastics right and it you know they were cheap, they were useful. Uh, people started using them in their daily lives and you know all kinds of possibilities opened up. And as the decades marched forward, people used these things more and more and more. Plastics now are everywhere. They're throughout the world. Microplastics have been found in the deepest parts of the oceans. They've been found in the high Arctic. They've been found all you know many different ecosystems on land. They're probably plastic in you right now. There's probably plastic in me right now. Plastics throughout this museum plastics right in your hometown you know you live on an island the island of newfoundland lots of water almost certainly there's a huge amount of plastic surrounding the island in the water bodies right in your backyard
1: i'm going to be honest with you that actually makes me really really angry i love being around the water i love to sail i love to surf i love to swim and thinking about our oceans being destroyed is something that really bothers me
2: well mike you're a researcher i mean you spend a lot of time on the water doing various activities but Maybe you should take a deeper look, look under the water and see what's going on. I think it might be eye-opening for you.
1: As someone who sails and surfs and scuba dives, I spend a lot of time in and on the ocean. And I've seen it in all its glory. But for me, it's really hard to understand how something can be so beautiful on the surface but suffering so much underneath. You know, I think about the ocean, I think about being pristine and beautiful, but environmental research is telling us otherwise. There's only one way to find out. Jeff connected me with the team at ACAP Humber Arm who were doing an ocean cleanup in the harbor in Bergio. So I grabbed my scuba gear and headed west. Hey, Brandon, how's it going, man? Good, buddy. How are you doing today? Good, man. Thanks for having me down. Yes, appreciate
0: you coming down to give us a hand. Yeah, so tell me what we're up to today. So the plan is we're going to get in on the other side of the trailer here. Um, We're going to scout the area. There's a lot of garbage. We've already hit this area around here so uh, we're gonna pick up whatever we see you know plastic tires uh, we found a few nets so it's nice to see this stuff come out of the water we'll gear you up right over by our trailer we're gonna get our diver ready here and uh, we'll enter the water over the side of the wharf and uh, we'll pick up the garbage as we go let's go get geared up and get in there
1: being so close to shore I wasn't sure what to expect but judging by the bins of garbage in the dock, it doesn't look like there was a shortage of stuff to clean up. When I dove in, I met up with the diver and we started in. It was a silty bottom, but even with low visibility, it wasn't hard to find garbage. Jeff was right. There was plastic everywhere, and not the kind of stuff you'd expect. There's old mats and toys and buckets and even house siding. If this is in our water, it's also likely in the life that lives in it and around the water, and that means us too. I don't think we consider how pollution not only impacts our environment, but our bodies and our health. I know I didn't. This has been a journey. I never would have thought that a conversation would open my eyes to the impacts we're having on a place that I call home. Whether it's thinning sea ice or plastic pollution, our most life abundant ecosystem in the entire world is taking a massive hit because of our decisions. The question remains, is there any
0: hope?
3: So Mike, I really wanna thank you for joining us here in Bergio today.
1: Thanks very much, it was uh, interesting.
3: Yeah, for for one of our underwater cleanups. I mean, you even got in the water and participated there for a bit. You got a view different than most people would see. I'm just, you know, what did it look like down there?
1: Yeah, I was surprised, uh, you know, there was like typical seabed kelp and, and some sea life and all that stuff. But there was a lot of garbage and like, you know, when you pull it up and you, you, you pull up a mat or you pull up an old toy or a bottle or whatever. And I found that to be like a little bit alarming when you see how much is down there. And no matter where you look, there was always something to pick. So I'm sure you guys are going to stay busy for a while here. Now, when I think about like what you guys are doing here, it seems like you're making a pretty big impact. What's the, what's the goal of your whole
3: project? Well, we've been working an awful lot in rural communities. And one of the issues we always hear especially from the fishers i mean they're great stewards of the environment they spend a lot of time on the water is the historical accumulation of debris Mm -hmm. cleaning up shorelines relatively easy with volunteers underwater cleanups you know we we require scuba divers and others so we've been really fortunate now to be able to work all throughout rural newfoundland engage with local divers to begin to remove some of uh, some of this debris and hopefully restore the habitat a bit
1: so you guys are doing this, but you're also doing other initiatives to help the environment. What are some of the other things you guys are looking at here?
3: Yeah, so this is just one of the things we're doing in Bergio, and we have a lot of initiatives in, in different rural communities. And, you know, as an environmental organization, we're looking at the, the quality of the marine environment. Mm-hmm. But really, it's, uh, it's bigger than that. Uh, we hear an awful lot about the challenges that are facing rural Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when we visit these communities and we see the scenery and we meet the people, There's just so much potential. Mm -hmm. And most of it is around our marine and coastal areas. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, how do we protect these areas? How do we conserve these areas? How do we promote them to help, you know, sustain these these rural communities? Mm -hmm. We don't want to come in and do it Mm -hmm. without the community support and without the community engagements. They take a sense of ownership.
1: So I think I've had a really unique perspective. I've been up north and I've seen how the sea ice melting is impacting the communities up there and I really didn't have much of an idea how the way of life was and how reliant it is on that. Mm -hmm. Coming here now and looking at this beautiful area and realizing there's garbage in the the ocean right next to where people are living, uh, it's a little bit alarming. So what would the average person or what can the average person do if they wanted to make a difference?
3: Yeah, and you know, certainly residents, if they're aware of it, are disgusted by it as, as well, and they want to see that action. You know, on an individual basis, they can make sure that it doesn't reaccumulate. Take care with their own their own debris or whatnot. Uh, but they can really support the work of groups like ourselves, and raise awareness. Talk about it. Let others know. Let's make people aware of the issue, uh, so hopefully we can prevent it uh, from reoccurring in the future.
1: yeah That's why I'm so glad you let me to come out here today, experience it myself, and uh, and help you guys along with it. I really appreciate it.
3: Oh no, we're so glad to have
1: you here. Yeah. That was Sheldon Peddle from the team at ACAP Humber, who was helping with the harbor cleanup in Burgio. It was an incredible experience. Now, when we come back, we'll finish up our conversation on climate change by talking with Dr. Daniela Frazier from the Canadian Museum of Nature.
0: Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather and more during your VOCM morning show.
1: Welcome back. As we continue to delve into the topic of climate change in Newfoundland and Labrador, it's crucial to understand its impact on our ecosystems. Now, to provide us with an expert perspective, I met with Dr. Danielle Fraser, a paleobiologist at the Canadian Museum of Nature. Dr. Fraser's research examines how climate change has influenced mammal communities, offering valuable insights into the long-term consequences of these shifts. Now, by drawing on her experience, we hope to better comprehend the ongoing transformations in our province and the implications to our future. Now, we met in one of the most interesting rooms I've ever been in. We were surrounded by tens of thousands of animal bones, skulls, taxidermy, and even a wall of antlers. It was definitely an interesting part of the museum that held the history of the animals that call our country home. So what does your research tell you about what's happened in the past and then what's happening right now when it comes to trends in wildlife?
4: So my research has two prongs. One is to look at um, the responses of mammals in particular to climate change and the arrival of humans in deep time, and to look at the response of modern mammals and recent mammals to ongoing climate change. And so what our research is showing in deep time is that when mammals are exposed to climate change that takes thousands to millions of years, they are typically able to respond. And the species that go extinct generally are species that are specialized in some particular way. So that might be a species that has a very specialized diet, for example. Um, And we have also shown that organisms adapt to this climate change through things like changing their diets, um, through changing where they live on the landscape, moving around on the landscape. Um, And this, this is common across a lot of climate change periods, particularly in the last 66 million years during the time that we call the Cenozoic. And in shallower time, you know, in the last 20,000 to 40,000 years, we know that this is a period when uh, humans start arriving on various continents, including North America. So humans arrive in North America between um, 20 and 15,000 years ago. Um, and we know that a variety of mammals went extinct at that period. And there's a big difference between the animals that survived that period and those that don't. And it's a trait that we don't see predicting extinction in deeper time, and that's body size. It turns out that things that are really big and tasty tend to go extinct at the end of the Pleistocene, not long after humans arrive. Mm. Um, But the things that do survive, even when they are large, tend to be animals that appear to have some level of flexibility. Were they able to adjust to that environment like wolves? So some of our research has shown that wolves switched their diet, and that Mm. may have allowed them to survive through that period.
1: So, you know, you hear about extinctions going on and being at a higher rate, is that actually true? What's what's happening when it comes to the extinction patterns? Are they, are they indicative of the past or are they change somehow now?
4: Yeah, so that's an excellent question and actually there's been quite a bit of research into how quickly things are going extinct mm-hmm. um, and there's been a variety of research papers in the last 10-15 years trying to do these types of calculations mm-hmm. and what's coming out of that is that potentially things are going extinct quite a bit faster, even compared to what we call the big five mass extinctions. So this includes the end of the era of the dinosaurs when we lose all non-bird dinosaurs. So what it shows is, in fact, the rate might be exceeding that. And there's some discourse around that, but it's looking more and more like things are going extinct really quickly.
1: So when it comes to what's happening and what you've learned from the past, is there hope for the future when it comes to correcting some of these challenges?
4: I think there absolutely is hope. So my research is showing that, firstly, organisms are adaptable if we give them time and if we give them space. And so I think that a lot of these conservation efforts around protecting some megafauna like wolves, elephants, Um, are really effective. And that's not just because they save the wolves and because they save the elephants, but because they act as umbrella species and also protect all the little critters and the bacteria and the worms that are there to help those ecosystems survive. So I do think there's hope. And we know that particular conservation efforts are working really well. Um, So marine protected areas are in fact Uh, being shown to be really effective at restoring biodiversity in these regions and protecting that biodiversity, despite what else is going on uh, in terms of overfishing and things like that in the oceans. And we know, for example, that conserving wolves in Yellowstone and reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone has had a lot of positive impacts. And so this tells me that we can protect these animals. And by taking specific actions like putting aside land, as E.O. Wilson put it, putting aside half the earth, we can save these creatures and we can retain the biodiversity that provides everything we need as humans to live and to function as a society. As part of my job at the Museum of Nature, I spend time trying to communicate aspects of biodiversity loss to the public. And it's my hope that by educating the broader public, we create a society that is more informed about how, where, and when We conserve the land that we have and the resources that we have. It's also my hope that we create a country and a society that likes to fund this type of fundamental research and is really interesting in making sure that we not only conserve the biodiversity but also first and foremost know what biodiversity we have because here at the Museum of Nature we are really in the business of figuring out what we don't know and it turns out we don't know a lot. So we've seen so many projects come through here at the Canadian Museum of Nature, and we undertake so many of these projects ourselves. And we know that when people take action and when people support efforts in conserving biodiversity, that it actually works.
1: So you've gone to school for a long time. You've got a PhD in the field. Why choose this area to work?
4: Well, first of all, it's for the love of nature. As I was growing up, I always loved nature documentaries. I preferred them over cartoons. Yeah. So it also comes from a fundamental place of loving nature. But secondly, it comes from a desire to actually make a difference. And as much as I'm a paleobiologist, and a lot of people think that paleontology doesn't have implications for today or the future, a lot of the research we do actually does. And so I'm really driven by that fact, the fact that I can study organisms thousands or millions of years old and actually tell us something about what's going on today and in the future.
1: As we wrap up today's episode, let's take a moment to reflect on the valuable insights shared by our guests that I gained during my travels. One thing that's clear is that climate change is affecting Newfoundland and Labrador. From Dr. Jeff Sorella's expertise on the Canadian Arctic's role as a climate change indicator to how Rex and his team at Smart Ice are adapting to our changing environment, we've seen how crucial it is to monitor and understand these shifts. Our conversations with Dr. Danielle Fraser emphasize the importance of studying past climate change, and my dive with the team at ACAP Humber reinforced the need to take action today in our communities to address issues like ocean plastics. Now, throughout today's episode, we've learned that climate change doesn't just impact our environment. It has profound consequences for our health and well-being, from physical ailments to mental health challenges. Our food security, infrastructure and healthcare services are also affected by these transformations and they emphasize the need for us here in Newfoundland and Labrador to take action. So what can we take away from our conversations? Well, first, we can be aware of the interconnectedness of climate change and its effect on the different aspects of our lives. We can understand that climate change isn't something that's happening in other parts of the world, but it's also happening right here at home. Secondly, we can educate ourselves and we can develop policies and initiatives that promote resilience, sustainability, and the well-being of our communities. And lastly, I think we can all do our part in our personal lives. This can be simple things like making conscious choices around reducing, reusing, and recycling, and supporting local initiatives where we can. Well, thank you for sharing this journey around our beautiful province with me today. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of The Wall Show on your VOCM.